This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly, a weekend of all the top teams winning, of long VAR checks and of Ethan Pinnock. Manchester City win the derby comfortably. Once again, most of the questions are about the opposition. United looking lost and average. Mind you, most teams do against City. Chelsea host their annual defeat to Brentford. Goal of the season and almost a goal for Neil Mope. Eddie Nketiah must wish he played Sheffield United every week, except not next season, because then he'd have been sold back to Leeds or something. Spurs are still top after a mostly comfortable evening at Palace, and there are totally comfortable wins for Liverpool and Villa. At the bottom, a massive result for Andoni Iriola over Burnley. Everton shot West Ham, and Gary O'Neill is so unhappy with refs, he's not going to speak to them anymore. News of the Canadian champions stumbling into Barry's pub. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. should say it's not there is a comma between the Canadian champions and stumbling into Barry's pub it wasn't the whole of uh, the successful team wandering into a pub in Brixton after a very heavy night winning their tournament on the panel today Barry Glendening welcome home thank you Max good to be back I listened to all yes. of the pods while I was away and I have to say they were depressingly good <laughs> well you can bring it back down to its usual level Will Unwin hello good morning Max and hello Jonathan Wilson Morning. How are you doing? Uh, very good. Uh, yes, Connor says, new Barry, I expect more zen. Probably made new friends for life and has a wrist full of hippie bracelets. Sweetie says, Barry is back and I feel complete as a human being. Uh, let's start at Old Trafford. Uh, Manchester United nil, Manchester City three, two for Erling Haaland, one for Phil Foden. Um, Will, you were there. Did you enjoy it? It was very enjoyable, yes. Manchester City, uh, far, 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 far better than Manchester United. Um, Ten Hag afterwards said it was toe-to-toe -to -toe first half, which was fair enough. City were a bit better, but also City were nowhere near their best. And once they turned it on in the second half, the difference in the two teams was laughable, really. Utter control from City, able to pass the ball between each other, which United didn't seem to be able to do. United had no obvious plan to score. I couldn't tell you what their their hopes were most of their chances in the first half came from City's poor passing backwards and letting in United for the odd chance. But yeah, City, I would argue, was their best 45 minutes of the season, which is the only defence I can offer United. But apart from that, yeah, it was a it was <laughs> it was a sign of how how different the clubs are. You know, just. This recruitment at United obviously doesn't seem to make sense, whereas City seem to nail it every summer at the moment. It's going to be a long, long road back for United to get anywhere near City again. And actually, that's a question, Wilson, that we've asked before. You saw, you know, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville having a, a sort of head-to-head -head on this. Is, is as Will mentioned, what is Manchester United's plan? I don't think they've had a plan for a decade or so. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think the plan went when, when Fergie went. No, in, in January when they beat City, I, I thought, well, at least now there is a proper challenge to City in Manchester. And a slightly mis mischievous headline on the piece I wrote then has means the City fans quoted back at me all the time. But I, I just sort of thought, well, you know, City are probably still going to be better than United because Guardiola is an exceptional coach and because they've had years of uh, you know, this holistic planning to get to this point. But United at least are coming back. And nine months on, United just look absolutely hopeless. And I think what's really worrying for them now is that it, you know, the sort of patchwork nature of their squad, you kind of explain, explain it because they've had so many different coaches in, you know, since, since Ferguson left. The fact they'd had Moyes and they'd had Van Gaal and they'd had Mourinho and they'd had... Solskjaer. Uh, Solskjaer and they'd had Rangnick. And, and they all had you know, their little bits of influence. But what's really concerning now, I think, is the players Ten Hag has brought in don't seem to fit. You know, if you look at City this season, the area where they've been weak, and I admit this is partly because of Jeremy Doku and he didn't play. If you look at the stats, they've been attacked down their left way, way more, the City left, than, than, than down their right. Because Doku has tended to leave, whether it's Ake or whether it's Gradiol, to leave him exposed. You think of how Pedro Neto, for instance, played against them. So you'd think this is the perfect game for United to play a hard-running, dribbling, right-sided player and yet Anthony doesn't get on the pitch till the 86th minute. Now, that suggests they don't think Anthony's good enough, and they spent God knows what on him, on Ten Hag say-so. Mason Mount came in in the summer. 
I think Mason Mount's a really, really good footballer, but he's had a really bad 18 months. And I don't understand what he's doing. He touched the ball 14 times in the second half. He wasn't involved at all. Amrabat is good enough. He's, he's brought in as a stopgap. He's, he's probably okay as a stopgap. But why are they still signing stopgaps? You know, Johnny Evans. I mean, it's nothing against Johnny Evans, but he shouldn't be there. So the whole thing is chaos. And you know, um, I think it was last time I was on, was just after the Galatasaray game. And we were saying that goal that Akadi scored was just a weird-looking goal. Like you don't get goals like that where a player just suddenly gets the ball and is clean through. How is Erling Haaland twice unmarked at the back post? And not just unmarked, not close to being marked. Yeah, okay, maybe it happens once. You think, oh, Christ, we can't let that happen again. Oh, no, four minutes later, go on, have another go. You know, there's no defensive organisation. The recruitment is, is appalling. Morale is terrible. And there's this real peevishness and petulance to them now. You know, Anthony should have been sent off for that swipe at Doku late on. Bruno Fernandes, that, that challenge on John Stones, where Stones actually ends up doing him. But that was Fernandes who initiated that. And so I think, I mean, you know, who cares who the captain is? It's not the big issue. But again, that sort of petulance is, is, is coming from a position in authority. So everything about the club is wrong. And any gains we made last season have pretty much now been lost. Mark says, a nice gentle one to ease Barry back into it after his well-deserved break. City are good, aren't they, Barry? No, you don't need to, you don't need to answer that one. C- can we talk about that penalty? Because there's quite a lot of chat about that penalty, the VAR check, Hoyland grabbing Rodri. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts are that it was quite obviously a foul and therefore a penalty. But the people who are arguing that we see this happen all the time and similar fouls go punish, unpunished time after time in matches, they also have a point. But on this occasion, it was given. And, and Manchester United's only complaint can be that, well, it happened later in the game and that penalty wasn't given. But that would have also been a penalty against them. <laughs> so <laughs> if that's all they have to cling to, um, no, it, it was a penalty. But yes, we do see this happen all the time and, and such fouls go unpunished. Now, there seems to be a suggestion that this one was given because the ball was arcing into the path of Rodri and he was prevented from getting his head to it. And that's, I suppose, is fair enough. The ref can be forgiven for not seeing it because... There's so much going on, you know, in the penalty area that he can't be expected to see everything. Going back, I was just thinking about this. Uh, If you look at that Manchester United, Manchester United are one of the biggest clubs in the world. Everyone hates the Glazers and wants them to leave because they're bad owners. And that's totally fine. I agree. But they do hose a lot of money at players. And Manchester United have spent a hell of a lot of money on players in the last 10 years, over a billion. If you look at that Manchester United starting lineup, you, like Jonathan says, and I don't want to be mean to, to Johnny Evans, but he was ostensibly brought in to act as a, a kind of therapy dog for the under-21s, wasn't he? And, you know, help them mature and gain experience and stuff. He's starting alongside Harry Maguire, who... Eric Ten Hag clearly doesn't fancy. Who in that Manchester United side would get a game for City? I, I can't think of a single player. But if Pep had to play one of them or a couple of them, you you reckon they would be a lot better. And I think Eric Ten Hag is getting a very easy ride um, because I think he's doing a, a terrible job. It goes back to the recruitment. On Johnny Evans, I have no issue with United signing him, but he's playing in the Manchester derby ahead of Rafael Varane. I... The justification for that is was ludicrous. That you know, Ten Hag needed players that could do angles at the back, and you know, it would allow Maguire to play on the right. Who, again, as Barry says, doesn't really fancy the structure within that team. Doesn't exist. Yeah, Johnny Evans was sold by United to West Brom in August two thousand fifteen. Do we think he's got better in the last eight years? If he wasn't like a fine wine. That's what he is. <laughs> if he wasn't good enough in 2015, and look, Johnny Evans is a very, very good footballer. He's just not quite that very, very elite level. If he wasn't, but if he wasn't quite good enough in 2015, do we, he's not good enough at the age of 35. It's it just shows how how far United have fallen. That, and I know he's only playing because of injuries, but uh, you, you keep coming back to this point. Is it really not an 18 year old in the academy who could do okay? Well, probably not because. 
this is another, you know, there's so many problems at United from the top down and the academy is one of them. I mean, we, we're piling on Johnny Evans here, which I think is unfair because there's... No, no Johnny Evans, to be clear, he's a symptom. He's not the cause of the yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of blame to go around for that performance yesterday. For players, manager, uh, recruitment, everyone, you know. And I, I would argue... The, while all this has happened under the Glazers' watch, the one thing they have done is provide money for players. Uh, but any players that have arrived, almost all of them have got worse. Well, okay, here's a question: like, if you can't bring Fernandez as a sort of as an attacking midfielder, who is the last good midfielder United signed who's had, so say, two or three years of playing well for them or more? Paul Ince. <laughs> I, I think I think slightly after Ince. I think I think it's Michael Carrick. Okay, yeah. I mean, what a player. Yeah. But you know, that, when did he come in? Two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, something like that. Yeah. Something something like that. that. yeah. How, can, <laughs> how can a club of United stature not sign a good midfielder in sixteen years? Gary Neville was making the point that you know, so Jim Ratcliffe is coming in. He wants to get rid of all the the entire football department. There's lots of people there who are worried about losing their jobs. That is adding to the stress within all of this. And I think that, there, you know, I think there must be some truth to that, Baz. I'll tell you what would add to my stress is the, the notion that uh, he plans on giving Sir David Brailsford a major role at the club. That would send my stress levels through the roof because I don't rate that man at all. Um, he, he, you know, we all know sort of what went on at the Sky Cycling team. And they, they they were crushingly dominant for a while, but God, they were awful to watch. I, I think he would be the, <laughs> the Jose Marino of of um, or the Antonio Conte of uh, team putting a team together rather than managing one. So yeah, it do, it seems slightly the wrong way around, doesn't it? You see off Qatar, and then you bring in the asthma medication. <laughs> um, uh, Clive Tilsey tweeted, "Anyone else?" that could manage to watch a big football match without an overture from an urban poet now, question mark. And everyone thought he was talking, everyone thought he was having a massive swipe at Peter Drury, um, who I wouldn't necessarily describe as an urban poet. No, Clive Tilsey was having a go at the urban poetry that was on before the game where they get, you know, two youngsters from Manchester to read poems about Kyle Walker as they walk down through sort of gritty Manchester streets. I I was very upset that, they didn't get producer Dave Masterman from uh, the Ellis James and John Robbins Five Live show because he's he's a big blue and he's also a very keen and uh, he won't mind me saying this, I think, terrible amateur poet. <laughs> <laughs> they should have got him. He used to be a ball boy at City. Really good if it's bad, isn't it? I mean, then if they made a big VT with lots of production and the urban poetry was incredibly shit, that would be a totally different matter. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the, the Manchester United, the one thing they have done very well is commemorate the life of Sir Bobby Charlton. And the scarf on his seat really did just got me a little bit when I saw that. I thought it was a lovely touch. Um, let's go to Stamford Bridge. Chelsea nil, Brentford 2. Um, just when it looked like Chelsea were turning a corner. Uh, this happens. Uh, Richard Jolly says Ethan Pinnock's played in more Premier League wins at Stamford Bridge than Enzo Fernandez uh, in the last seven months. Brentford have won twice as many Premier League games at Stamford Bridge as Chelsea have. Um, Jamie, have the stars aligned? Not only is Baz back, but he's parachuted in to deconstruct an Ethan Pinnock. Wait for it. Glenn Denning-esque back post header. You couldn't write it. Football. Bloody hell. Go on, Baz. Well, Ethan's header was a lot better than my famous header. I'll I'll give him that. Um, it's it's weird. I've weirdly become associated with Ethan Pinnock through this running joke of me genuinely thinking that his uh, back post tapping against, I think it was Liverpool a couple of years ago, should have been a goal of the season because it was a brill- He finished off a brilliantly worked free kick. Um, so I always get a kick when he a kick out of it when he does well, and my my phone sort of lights up whenever he scores. Uh, so that's just quite nice. Um, and I hope that no one, th- I hope no one thinks I'm taking the piss out of him because I'm genuinely not. I genuinely want to see him do well. And and he's a he's an example to to a lot of people because you know he he was at Dulwich Hamlet, Forest Green, Barnsley. Then so he didn't really. He's thirty years old. 
Um, and he signed for Barnsley in 2017. He was there two years. He's been at Brentford ever since. And he, he's ever almost ever-present in the Brentford side. Well, you're either ever-present or you're not. He's ever-present in the Brentford side when he's fit. And he's a fine player. He, he does his job brilliantly. He pops up with the odd goal. I think he summed up Brentford's tactics in his post-match interview. Uh, I think he got man of the match. He said we, we wanted to stifle them, stay in the game, stay compact and just try to frustrate them. And that's exactly what they did. And it worked. I like the fact that Ethan Pinnock, given the hits of dopamine you get when your phone lights up, Ethan Pinnock is probably the human being on earth who is contributing most to your happiness. <laughs> Barry. I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> anyway, Dan says, are we, the Guardian Football Weekly community, past the do Chelsea need to spend and rebuild jokes? I'd be disappointed if we were. Charlie says, should Chelsea have strengthened in the summer? There's your proof, Dan. No, we're not. Look, I, I think in this game, Wilson, I mean, they were unlucky. And, and this has happened before, of course, but Madueke, you know, hitting the bar. Sterling had a couple of really good chances. Cucurella had that chance. Sterling is definitely pushed over for a penalty. Um, but it does keep happening. Yeah, and, and I think you know, there's two aspects of, to football. There's, there's the process and then there's the, the doing. And, and I think for years in Britain, we were too sort of obsessed with the scoring of the goal or the making of the save and neglected the process. And now I sort of feel it's flipped to the other extreme. If you have players who habitually, and I mean Raheem Sterling by this, who habitually don't take chances. I, I know Sterling has had great seasons, but Sterling out of form is a very bad decision maker. And his form this season has, has sort of shown flickers of being quite good. He still often makes bad decisions. Uh, and if you have players who make individual mistakes, it's it's a big problem. So you look at the first Brentford goal, great header from Pinnock, obviously. But it's, it's, it's a basic throw-in where Kukurea is left to deal with the thrower and the man receiving the ball. It's a simple throw it to him, knock it back to the thrower. And Kukurea can't do anything. Why is why is nobody supporting him? That, that's just basic. Dezassi doesn't challenge for the header. And I think, is it Madueke as well at the back post? Doesn't challenge for it. So it's, it's just, it's really basic. And it, you know, it's the same as United. These are really basic things a good player should be doing. But there's something not quite right there. At United, I think it's, it's sort of a general decline of morale because of the, the sort of the, the, the decline of a club over the past decade. At Chelsea, it's because they're all, they're all kids. Um, mm. Yeah, Alan Shearer did a really good piece on, on Match of the Day looking at the runs that Nicholas Jackson was making. Yeah, it was really good, wasn't it? Um, and it was, you know, it's somebody who, who obviously knows exactly what he's talking about, saying, look, this, this bloke's not doing it. Well, Nicholas Jackson only played 16 league games before he came to Chelsea. Why would he be able to do that? Where would he have learned to do that? I, and, it, you know, Mudrick is similar. 30-odd games in Ukraine before he arrives here, and suddenly he's been asked to be an £80 million player. Well, that's not how it works. And if you had one or two of them, you can accommodate that because you have the experienced players there to give them the advice to to talk them through it. But they're all children. So it's just this big crash all running around. with and all, None of them are bad players, but they, they just don't have experience when things go wrong and they make basic mistakes, which is what cost, cost the goals. There is one little difference is that every time they lose the ball, they don't burst into tears, <laughs> and like, like, like bereft with grief. But I, I understand the point, Baz. I don't disagree with what you're saying, Jonathan, but that thing Shearer did about, you know, your man not making the runs, are those not things you should learn as a, as a kid or even come instinctively? Well, possibly. And, but, I mean, I, I guess the, the, there's a reason why people think he's a good player. See, modern football, I think, a lot of those runs are sort of pre-programmed. They really work on them. There's a, an automization to attacking. And, and maybe the problem is that... To, you know, he's not being told where to make those runs and he doesn't have it instinctively. That all through his youth career, he has been told what to do and, and, and somehow you know, he, he needs those refreshes. I think Jaden Sancho had a similar problem, but he'd been at Dortmund where he was a very sort of regimented way of attacking. He gets to Solskjaer's United and he's got to think it through himself and he can't do it. But yeah, to be honest, I don't know enough about Jackson to know how, he's, how he has been or know enough about Villarreal to know how they do things. Um, but the point is, anyway, he's not making them. It may be you're right that it, it, it has those those things have to be instinctive, and he hasn't got it. Um, I think I think probably those things can be learned. I mean, if you, if you look at somebody like in a Chelsea context, look at Drogba, or you look at say uh, Salah at Liverpool, that there's a moment when something clicks and suddenly they start scoring loads of goals, and that can happen in your mid twenties. 
So I think it is possible to learn that. But yeah, probably ideally you do need that to be slightly instinctive. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, and I, also I don't know about his career as a kid, but if you are incredibly quick as a young player, you don't necessarily have to learn how to play the game as much as if you're not. And he's he's pretty fast. Harlan's interesting, as Lars has mentioned a few times, is that he didn't like fill out for years and years. So actually as a youth team player, he sort of had to learn how to play football and, you know, in a sort of sharing him not blessed with pace type way. And then suddenly he gets all these huge, incredible physical attributes and, and it changes him. Tim says, Neil Mope turned down the chance to shoot at an open goal. Is he, is he just saving up some sort of footballing karma to score the greatest goal of all time? I did think, Will, um, um, Bumo should have passed it back to him. Say, go on, Neil. Oh, oh sweet, Max, isn't it? Yeah. This is why you never made it as a professional, just passing the ball. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> that would be sort of, yeah. I'm still waiting for my I'm still waiting for my physical you know, <laughs> all these attributes to just appear overnight. But um it was a funny I mean I, I don't know, you don't want to hammer Nick Neil Mopay. He looks much better for Brentford than he did for Everton, but that is a funny moment, isn't it? I think he's a lot more comfortable in that surrounding than he ever was at Everton. I saw him quite a few times at Everton. I saw him score for Everton. It was a deflected goal, obviously. That was his one goal for last season. But yeah, he certainly doesn't look confident. You get an open goal, you you take it. You want to really get on the score sheet, get get your morale back. But hopefully, one day he'll you know he'll do a cane from the, the, his own half, and that'll get him back in form. But you know, he was always a pretty average striker, to be fair. Um, I think he was linked with not, not Nottingham Forest last summer, and they were quite pleased when they didn't get him in the end. Yeah, it's yeah. It was just quite funny. It's always good to see a goalkeeper go up, though, isn't it? That's yeah, the main nice. thing. That's what we all want. Good panic at Chelsea. Goalkeeper up in the last minute. Can't even succeed on that one. Um, but yeah, yeah. good luck to Neil. I'm sure he'll score a goal in 2028. All right, that'll do for part one. Part two will begin at the Emirates. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Julia says, hi all. My daughter Georgia, her partner James and myself will be attending the Brighton show on the 22nd of November. Live streamed with Barry, Jonathan Liu, Nicky Bandini and the Reverend Rushton. He says, I purchased the uh, book with the tickets and because I have to collect it at the venue, everybody's already read it. It's like getting the Beano book in January. Uh, Yet we're going on tour. Uh, Brighton is sold out, uh, but you can join the live stream. Um, I'll be tweeting hourly about that soon. Uh, that is theguardian.com slash fwtour23. Uh, if you can't watch it live, uh, you can watch it um, anytime to suit you the following week. Uh, uh, we've still got tickets available in London and Manchester. Uh, the Will Unwin anecdote is shifting the tickets, Will. You'll be pleased to know. Uh, John Bruin and Nader Manua have a few tickets there and a few tickets, a few more tickets bigger venue in london for me baz ellis troy and philippe please come at theguardian.com slash fwtour23 i've been writing a song does that that means people will come or won't i don't know anyway um arsenal five sheffield united nil eddie and ketty's first premier league hat-trick um that third goal barry what a hit yeah, absolute beauty. He rifles. He scored two really good goals, actually. But, yeah, that was probably the pick of them. Um, Jack Robinson made it easy for him, sort of backed off, turned his back to it as well a bit. Um, naughty Jack. But um, I think Nketiah's first was, was nice as well. There was sort of three goals like Calvert that. Lewin. Just lovely touches over the weekend. Um Dominic Calvert-Lewin got one, Huang Hee Chan got one for Wolves, and this one, they were all a little similar, just lovely first touches that, that enabled them to to tee up shots to score. Um, and Ketia, I think he, he gets accused of being a flat-track bully. People say that he'll only ever be a squad player at Arsenal because he doesn't deliver against the, the bigger sides. He only scores against weak opposition. I suppose the stats bear that up, but... The opportunities he gets are limited because he's obviously behind Gabriel Jesus in the pecking order. So when he does get an opportunity, even if it is only against Sheffield United and he scores a hat-trick, could have got four if he'd taken the penalty, then, you know, you you can only say that's good. That's that's an excellent performance, Eddie. Um, So, yeah. Fair play to him. I suppose, you you know, it, it wouldn't be wise to not score against Sheffield United to prove you weren't <laughs> a flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be the, the alternative. 
So look, Arsenal start, I think, is better than their start last year. Uh, uh, Wilson, are they better than last year? Yeah, I think they are. Yeah, I and mean, certainly the squad is deeper. Uh, I think Declan Rice has added something to the midfield. Um, definitely got more options up front. Uh, the fact that they've the fact they've beaten City is is a huge thing. Uh, so yeah, I think I think they probably are better than City. I think City are arguably playing better at this stage than they were last season as well. Um, not scoring as many goals. I think before the weekend it was. 19 this season to 33 last season for City. But I, I, th- I think generally their football is, has been better. Um, and Liverpool have been a lot better. So I, th- I think the level of league generally has been better this season. At the top end. The, b- the bottom end is very different. Yes, at the bottom end, yes, not so much, Will. Sheffield United, the worst start to a Premier League. Uh, and Tottenham are better as well. Sorry, I should have said that. That's, that's quite obvious. Tottenham are, Tottenham are slightly better than they were. And Villa, we should say, but... Um, uh, Tottenham are slightly better we'll get to them Sheffield United will it is the worst start to a Premier League season ever um, which is sort of impressive in a way they've lost nine of their ten games goal difference of minus 22 it's so bleak like they are so hamstrung by A injuries like ravaged and letting their two best players go before the season seems weird that anyone would think it's a sacking Heckenbottom will make any difference sacking Heckenbottom won't make a massive amount of difference. Whether he's a Premier League level manager is up in the air still. Probably not. I think you know, they were quite surprised they got promoted last season in the end. The squad is arguably weaker than it was last season. I think pushing out Sanderberg a few days before the start of the season is ill-advised. They've got a lot of problems in the background with the ownership. They've been trying to sell it, which then means that the current owner is not desperate to put in money. You know, they've had two failed attempts to sell it to people that probably weren't suited to owning professional football clubs would be my description. It's not stopped people before, I would suggest. No, but at least these two failed, to be fair. Um, and yeah, they're just a just a championship squad. They're finding out it's a championship squad. Their only vague hope is that there's a couple of championship squads down in that relegation zone at the moment. And yeah, it's going to be a long old season and you know, you've got to accept that they're down and their main thing they're playing for is to get more than 11 points and beat Derby's record. Also at the bottom, Bournemouth beat Burnley 2-1. It is a, it's an absolutely massive win for them, Baz. And they, they probably deserved it, didn't they? I think they did, yeah. Um, Burnley will probably feel hard. Well, they feel hard done by, not because of the, the late equaliser that was disallowed, um, which took what, six, nearly six minutes to be ruled out by VAR, which was just ridiculous. Um, but because the Vincent Company was more upset about the the handball, I think it was, by Chris Metham, just right at the end when uh, Sander Berg tried to head home at the far post. Uh, and the ball, there is some contention. Did Metham had a fistful of his shirt, which is a foul, and the ball also hit Metham's hand, which was over his head, which is a foul. So, you know, that's there's two penalties right there, but they didn't get either of them. Um, but, yeah, huge win for Bournemouth, and I I think they deserved it. Philip Billings, excellent shot, or excellent goal, slightly overshadowed by Harry Coynes, which was, you know, Harry Kane's was 10 out of 10. Philip Billings was only a 6 or a 7 by comparison, I think. But they'll take it. And um, Burnley are in deep trouble. I thought they'd come good, but no sign of it so far. They just make too many mistakes and give the ball away too often in their own half. Yeah, I, I'm, Charlie Taylor's volley, it's worth saying, was absolutely brilliant for Burnley. I, I guess the point is, Wilson, people saying, oh, you know, they've got to get more pragmatic. You sense Vincent Company isn't going to, to do that. And so you have a squad that aren't as good trying to play expansive football. That that is that feels like, well, if you keep believing, maybe you get better, right? That's his. That's what his intention would be. The the problem with this term pragmatic, I I think company thinks that is the best way to win football matches. That that's why they play like that. So that is the pragmatic thing to do. But they've let in twenty five goals a season. I, I don't really know how you change it because the way they were successful last season, they were they were really good. And I mean they were the, the best team I've seen in the championship for a long time last season. And they were good because because they played played in that way. And you saw I I I thought we'd replicate in the way that we've seen other teams who go up playing that type of football being able to to replicate at least a, a variant of it in the Premier League. And and yeah, they they, they get caught in possession, they make the wrong choices, they they misplace passes and they 
they, they, they keep getting punished for it. So it wouldn't surprise me totally if they were able to catch Bournemouth, but it already feels like that bottom four, I think there's a gap of four points, isn't there, between Bournemouth and Forest. It already feels that bottom four is, is in danger of getting cast adrift because I don't, in my head, Forest don't really feel like relegation candidates. Yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, the length of time that offside takes, this is a problem that we've got that everybody wants it quick. I mean, obviously, six minutes is far too long. And so you've got David Coote sitting there thinking, oh, God, I think this is wrong, but I also know I'm going to get hammered because it's taking ages. And at least he did have the clarity of thought to think, this doesn't look right. There's something off here. Can we do it again? The line is the line is past Jay Rodriguez's head. Are we suggesting that Jay Rodriguez's head is not something you could score a goal with? Because I'm sure he's got a few <laughs> headers in his life. I mean, I think you're right. I And it's probably good they got the right decision but man, it would have been funny if they'd not got the right decision. <laughs> oh god! Well, yeah, there's, there's this this idea you heard mooted a while ago that oh, you know, if if I know this is not really over offsides, but if they if they can't if they you know, if, they, if they if they can't see clear evidence the decision is wrong within a minute, say you put a clock on it, then you stick with the on field decision. But that puts incredible pressure on the people choosing which which tape to show you, the people who stop it at the right point, on getting the right angle first time around. If you're going to stop the game, at least get the decision right. You're stopping it for two or three minutes and go, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> don't know. Can't do it. Can't tell. Whatever. Yeah, that's the worst <laughs> no, of all But it would be great if there was just a big, you know, that's when it gets, you know, you can hear it and then the ref just comes out, stands out against us. We don't know. So, whatever it was. <laughs> right. So, right, you know, you know, you know the you know the hooter they have in rugby league when the final whistle goes. If you just had a big sigh, of, oh, <laughs> don't know. It's probably worth noting that Bournemouth's next three games are against Liverpool, City, and Newcastle. It is difficult to see them taking any points from those games, but at least they'll go into them with confidence. This weird thing with Bournemouth is, like, I sort of feel uh, until the Everton game, which was only. The, the game before last, it was only three week, three match days ago. I sort of felt like they'd, they'd done all right. They didn't have really had any bad results, and yet somehow they're, they're fourth bottom. Uh, and they still have hard fixtures to play. Well, why is Bournemouth fixtureless harder than everybody else? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, well, look at look at Chelsea's coming up: Spurs, City, Newcastle, Brighton, Man U. Oof. Although Man U isn't particularly um, <laughs> daunting. Sheffield United. The only thing you can say in their favour is they haven't played Burnley, Luton, or Bournemouth yet. So they do have three three games that other teams seem to find winnable coming up. Still at the bottom, West Ham nil. Everton won. I mean, at the bottom for Everton, not West Ham. That is, well, a huge result for Everton. And I thought, I mean, it wasn't a classic, but I thought they really deserved it. It shows what Everton had been missing as a striker that can put the ball in the back of the net. And obviously, Dyche teams, generally well organised. The back four has had quite a lot of change over time due to injuries and personnel. But I think with Jared Branthwaite in there, They've looked a lot better, you know, not had to go back to Michael Key. They have a left back playing at left back, they have a right back playing at right back, which hasn't always been the way, you know, for quite a while due to selection issues. And so by being solid at the back and having a goal scorer who hopefully for Calvert Lewin can stay fit and healthy and say it was a it was a lovely finish, you know, it's um it's what they need and that will help them going forward. And I appreciate it was a very emotional day following the death of Bill Kenwright. Um and you know, whether that helps inspire them to give that a little bit extra yesterday is good and they just need to build some momentum and hope that they can keep the structure together. It looks a well-balanced side with McNeil and Harrison available now that they can go forward and do all right and get up to the you know the heights of 12 or something. We've all, all accepted that it's a, <laughs> the bottom four are kind of battle it out for those final spots. And I was at Everton the final day of last season and it's you know, quite a trend at Everton to to do that. But hopefully there's a bit of positivity and they can avoid that this season and look for you know, the rainbows arriving on Merseyside that they can go forward as a as a competent outfit and hopefully the new owners can give some investment if they, you know, get the get the nod from the authorities. I was watching their their kit, uh, they don't have the crest on it. I was interested to know why that was. So I looked it up, and uh, on their third kit, it has the uh, iconic Prince Rupert's Tower at the heart of the design, but no actual crest. Anyway, three out of five they've won, uh, Everton. So, you know, that is a, a good result. I didn't give them a hope at West Ham. Um, of course, they lost in 
Greece, didn't they, uh, in on Thursday night in the Europa League? So perhaps that is catching up with that in the same way that European football might be catching up with Newcastle, Wilson. They drew 2-2 at Wolves. I thought it was a really fun game, incredibly wet. Um, Baz has already alluded to that equaliser from Huang. But from a Newcastle point of view, they did look leggy, didn't they? Yeah, I, th- I think it was to be expected. I mean, it, it's not just that they they played Dortmund on Wednesday and, and, and lost the game. They were probably a bit unlucky to lose. It was really wet that night as well. So a bit of tiredness, a bit of fatigue, I think is both physical and emotional, I think is understandable. Wolves are pretty good this season at the minute. So I, I don't think it's really a surprise they, they, they drop points. I don't think it's a disaster for them that they've dropped points. Um, they're maybe a little bit fortunate to get the penalty. Uh, but draw probably probably about right in the end. On that penalty, I don't know what you think, Baz, because it looked to me, we were talking about this yesterday, it looked to me like Juan, Juan accidentally got the ball, which I, I presume is still getting the ball, isn't it? Like, I, I don't think he meant to kick it with that foot. So I, I don't think it is a, I don't think it is a foul. I can see why Anthony Taylor gave it on the pitch. Um, Gary O'Neill was not happy. I, I thought he was banged to rights at the time, and then when I saw the replay, I thought, no, no, it's not a penalty. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it was. They were, Newcastle were a little fortunate with that one, but like Wilson says, draw was fair. I feel like I waste my time speaking to them, said Gary O'Neill of all referees, so I'll stop speaking to them until they improve the level on what they produce. Uh, I have no time for them. That's a tough Just That's quite scathing, but... Does Gary O'Neill honestly think referees are going to be, you know, bereft because he's not speaking <laughs> I to don't them? Know. I'm sure they'd be quite happy if no managers ever spoke. To them. <laughs> Just wondering what the what the you know the the, the guest speaker at the PGMRL dinner. It's an, another name crossed off the list. <laughs> One day they do get. Do you think he should have said, "Yeah, I'm going to keep speaking. I'm never going. I'm going to keep ringing them up." Yeah, I mean, do you think he's like that if he just doesn't get the right coffee? He's then like, this level of performance is not good enough. I'm not speaking to my barista anymore. Uh, but, I mean, no, it, they, Wolves, I mean, Wolves have, Will, really surprised me. I mean, I think they're really entertaining. That Neto injury is a worry, of course, because he's, he's been brilliant. Um, but super impressed, impressed with, however grumpy Gary O'Neill is, what he's achieving there. Yeah, he's you know, he had very few days to prepare for the season and still that opening night against Manchester United they were really good and should have won that. And you know since then they've beaten City, they're showing attacking play which they've lacked for a while. The Huang goal was great. They're a very well organized side with little bit of flair and quality going forward so they can make different the difference in the final third. And as you say Neto has been one of the best players in the league and I'm sure many teams were looking at him for January prior to prior to his injury. And, you know, these things get thrown at managers. You know, Gary O'Neill will have a bit of spare time not speaking to referees this week so he can plot a course to replace Neto. Um, but, yeah, they, they're, they're doing exceptionally well. Gary O'Neill has proven himself to be a very good manager after leaving Bournemouth, which... You know, only time will tell, obviously, at, at the vitality, whether that was the right decision. But, you know, good on Gary O'Neill for bouncing back so soon and doing it in such a short space of time to create a new style. And obviously, with you know, quite a few players that he had no say over who coming in, it's um, worked out quite well for him. When he got sacked by Bournemouth, uh, Michael Cox, who, you know, friend of the show, who's now at the Athletic, tweeted that I was going to say they should sack him because I think he's not a very good manager he's been quite lucky but uh, I didn't want to because I thought I'd get too much heat and then proceeded to get a load of heat um, from from uh, irate Bournemouth fans and others but uh, I I was inclined to agree with him when he did said that but uh, O'Neill is at the moment proving me wrong I mean he's certainly my man to go to on all tactical based discussions Barry I don't I don't know about you. Well, there are a lot of people to go to these days, <laughs> and it's you. all Wilson's fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh, basically, I'm like, I'm like Oppenheimer. I've kind of I've unleashed <laughs> unleashed I, tactical hell. I, I am death, the destroyer of worlds. <laughs> Banjo says, as an American, I'm confused why managers in England wear non-waterproof puffy down jackets in the rain. Is this a British thing that you people do? Aren't all those vests and jackets ruined after getting rained on all match? Yeah, Eddie Howe and Gary O'Neill were absolutely soaking when they shook hands at the end of the game. <laughs> it was totally sort of like, and sodden, because, yeah, they didn't look like 
I'd have to check again, but they didn't look totally waterproof, their outfits. But, but, but the problem with that, like, the rain at the weekend was so bad, unless you were wearing like a full soester. <laughs> and the, the problem is that the kind of rain protective equipment is being sort of undermined by Steve McLaren. So like nobody, nobody's allowed to use an umbrella anymore. Well, when I, when I was on holidays, I went to an elephant sanctuary. Oh, no. Cause, no, I didn't do it. I love elephants. Uh, and, uh, but it was a, there was a monsoon. So we were all provided with uh, waterproof ponchos. So maybe that's what everyone should, should wear on the touchline. I was thinking, which manager would you most like to see in a Southwester? I mean, it is obviously Roy, isn't it? Like that, absolutely <laughs> loved him. That would be a total joy. Um, anyway, and we'll start uh, part three at Selhurst Park. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Spurs still top of the league, uh, uh, winning 2-1 at Crystal Palace. Duncan Alexander sent a good tweet going. Spurs record is uh, 8-2-0. Um, a nice tribute to the formation that Antonio Conte liked to play with them. Uh, <laughs> um, and Nathan says they're the only team in the current top nine without European commitments. How big of an advantage is that to winning the league? Even saying winning the league, is, it's already, it, it feels a bit premature, Wilson, doesn't it? Well, it does. But then you look at the stats for uh, teams who've taken, is it 26 points? From the first, yeah, 26 points for the first 10 mm-hmm. games. And... I think the lowest any of them's finished is third, um, and the last sort of four or five have won the league. So you can't say it's not a possibility. It doesn't feel like a possibility. Um, I, I also sort of, I sort of feel that we stopped talking about Tottenham about a month ago. Is oh yeah they started well. Oh yeah they're still doing well. They they have had. I mean, you're beating Palace two one on a Friday night is a slightly low key fixture. So I guess the test comes. I mean, yeah, they have played Liverpool and they have played Arsenal. But the test comes when they when they play City, and then we'll get a real a real insight. But they they definitely now, I, I, from from this position, you would say it would be a disappointment if they don't get Champions League. Which, yeah, you know, three months ago you would never have thought that. Well, you would because you had them second mm. in the table, but I wouldn't have thought that. I did. No, I mean Danny Kelly was a. Uh, um, I was chatting to him on Saturday, and he was uh, obviously big Tottenham fan, saying, "Look, at the end of April they go Newcastle away, City at home, Arsenal at home, Liverpool away." So they almost need to be 15 points clear by, by the time they get to that. But Barry, James Madison, look, they, they weren't brilliant in this game. Actually, they only had one shot on target. But James Madison was at the heart of everything they did well. And he's he's such a perfect player in the perfect place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all knew that was going to be the case when he signed for them. And I think they got him quite cheaply. I can't remember the exact number, but... For the amount he brings to the party, and you know he he doesn't get injured. Uh, he's a very intelligent player. He seems to be a very intelligent bloke. I love listening to him being interviewed. He always, you know, he just seems to be a cut above most other footballers. He he doesn't resort to cliche or anything like that. I'm sure he'll be a hugely in demand pundit whenever he retires. But that won't be for a long time yet. He makes a lot of stuff happen and. If he wasn't, you know, if Antonio Conte was still there and and he had somehow decided to sign James Madison, I suspect he wouldn't have. But he wouldn't be in a position to make all those things happen. He'd be, you know, 30 yards further or back near his own goal. But uh, I had no doubt he'd be a brilliant signing. He he just sort of oozes spurs and he's he's a class act on and off the pitch. Mm. I mean, oozing spurs... Sounds quite unpleasant. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> also, also not entirely successful over the last, I don't know, 50-odd years. But interesting, we were talking about Manchester United, Will, and their recruitment, how much money they've hosed at players. And look, there's fortune in recruitment. But you look at, like, Vicario and Van der Den, who I don't think it didn't feel like lots of people were after them. And they both sit, like, Van der Den seems, like, ridiculous as a centre-back. Sort of like, he's the fastest human that's ever lived and is always in the right place. Obviously, you look at Vicario and there's a lot of conversations about how Anana's taking time to settle and needs needs to adjust to the Premier League. No one's Vicario's not been mentioned all all season. He's doing really well. He's in net for the best team in the league. And he's, you know, very relaxed in there. Yeah, you know, very surprising that Spurs decided to bring in Van der Ven when Johnny Evans was available for free. <laughs> but yeah, he's the same. They're all players that you're not mentioning. 
everything's settled so easily. The analysis is, yeah, he's a solid centre-back, playing as a centre-back should, spotting danger, intercepting, doing all those things that is normal. And because the manager has a plan, they have a structure, they know what their role is within the team. They're not changing the side every week. I know Ben Davis played Friday night, that was his first start because of injury. Um, so, yeah, it's just what happens when you have a sensible manager who knows where he wants to be, what he wants to do. And, yeah, by having no European football in midweek, he's in the rare position of having time on the training ground to implement what he wants to do. And these things are paying dividends at the weekend and he sensibly got knocked out of the League Cup. Always a good idea. And Spurs are a good team, got a good squad. The manager is liked by everyone in a strange turn of events for professional football. And he looks like a good person to work for. Everyone's happy. Everyone's playing well because of it. And, you know, good luck to him for the rest of the season. I should have probably called Mickey van der Ven, van der Ven, not van der Den. So my apologies to him, but I still think he's great. Look, Palace didn't have... They miss Elise and Eze so much. It's like a totally different team without them. So they uh, will be looking forward to them returning. One, one little thing about Palace is... Um, after the game, Roy Hodgson dug out three of the young substitutes he brought on and was very critical of their lack of contribution. Um, Jasur and Raksaki, Nauru Amada, and who's the other guy? Just Franca, is that his name? Young Brazilian ch- striker, I think. I thought that was a bit uncalled for. And I know John- Jonathan's a, a big fan of Roy Hodgson, possibly even friends with him, but it seemed... I, he he seems to have a bit of a nasty strike streak that that sometimes I suppose we can all have, can't we? Just, just to be clear, I, I, I've had dinner with Arjun a couple of times in the past decade. I'm I'm not a friend of his. Um, I, I've met him a couple of times. I mean, he's he's very good company. We we shared a taxi once to get home from a restaurant. He dropped me off on the way. Well, I have I have had uh, lunch with him once, and he was obviously in my eye line when. Mick Hucknell sang Stars to Pele. So, like, you know. A story that's in the uh, Football Weekly book, which is available in bookshops now. It is, yeah, it is. Uh, you can get it from the Guardian Football Weekly bookshop. At Liverpool 3, Nottingham Forest, nil. I mean, the game totally overshadowed by um, uh, the reports from Colombia that Luis Diaz's parents uh, had been kidnapped. Uh, Jurgen Klopp described it as the most difficult game he'd ever had to prepare for. Uh, Diaz left the team hotel upon hearing of the kidnapping on Saturday night. Uh, He's being supported by Liverpool staff at home um, in England uh, as Colombian police search for his father, also called Luis, his mother, uh, Selenis Marulanda, has been rescued. Colombian police said a reward of up to 200 million pesos, 40,000 pounds was on offer to anyone who provides information that leads to the release of the player's father. Klopp said, how can you make a football game really important on a day like this? He said, it's really difficult. I never struggled with that in my life. Uh, it was always my safe place, sometimes my hiding point as a player or a coach. You're allowed during these 90-odd minutes to focus just on that. And it was impossible, absolutely impossible to do that uh, today. So, of course, um, uh, we send nothing but our thoughts to Luis Diaz and hope that his dad is found and it is all resolved. Um, on the pitch, um, top five record says, is that one of the best? You sort it out. No, you sort it out. Bits of miscommunication um, by Nottingham Forest. I loved that third goal, Baz. Yours, mine, leave it between Matt Turner and Harry Toffolo. Yeah, uh, they made an absolute mess of it. I mean, Liverpool, obviously the Luis, Luis Diaz thing overshadowed this game. Uh, but Nottingham Forest made it very easy for Liverpool by sort of more or less gifting them two goals. Uh, the third one in particular was just a mess between Turner and Toffolo. And Mo Salah didn't need to be asked twice to, to take advantage of their mix-up and communication. Yeah, you, I mean, you contrast that to, to the Mopo <laughs> yeah. non-finish. Yeah. You, sort of, like, you kind of think, is it, hey, maybe an open goal is not that easy. Maybe maybe too many things do crowd you. Man. Oh, no, you just take a touch and knock it in from 25 yards. It's dead easy. Their midfield is so good, Will. It, it's, it seems to be getting better all the time. So Bosley is just sort of effortlessly graceful and he sort of feels like he has everything as a player. Yeah, and he's a naturally confident man, knows his own abilities, been given a role within that Liverpool team that suits him perfectly, knows what his manager wants, is allowed to have a bit of freedom within that. And you know, you've seen what he's like striking a ball. It's uh, you know, He's quite fearful of goalkeeper's wrists. And 
it should take time for those relationships to be built between a midfield trio, but they're all so in sync. They know what each other is going to do, where they're going to be, and you know strengths and weaknesses. And I said, I said before on the pod that we did an interview with Sozabalai, uh, and he was very funny in a, in another language. So it shows that he can fit into a dressing room. He like you know he's got a few languages under under his wing and know, knows how to deal with other footballers and just seems to settle effortlessly and obviously he also announced that he lives two door downs from Erling Haaland who he previously played with with uh, Red Bull and yeah it's an exciting time for Liverpool and goes back to recruitment got the deal done very early saw who they wanted and brought him in whilst United are you know still hoping to find the next Michael Carrick as Jonathan will tell you Do you, do you think the person who lives between Haaland and Spozlai constantly has to go and retrieve the ball from when they're playing head tennis <laughs> from their respective back gardens. Presumably, if it's those two, like there's just holes in the fence, aren't there? Or he's just like, or like he's just stood yeah. in the middle, and the ball just goes into. He catches it, and then he goes through the fence, and then ends up in Spozlai's garden as Harland has pinged another one through. I mean, the thing about recruitment is interesting because they did miss out on Caicedo and Lavia Wilson, and yet it doesn't seem to be a problem because. Sobolstai is great. McAllister's great. Gravenberch, who was really brilliant on Thursday night against Toulouse as well, is a sensible signing as well with, you know, an endo can come in and cover a bit. Like that whole fear about this sort of midfield chasm that was there seems to have been totally filled up. Yeah, I think it was a not unreasonable fear because I think McAllister does need, um, certainly in in, against high-level opposition, he he needs a more defensive presence alongside him. I think he's better as that supporting player than than the, the, the main anchor. And they've they've cobbled together a solution. Uh, Gravenberch, when he was at Ajax, looked really high quality player. Didn't really work out for him in the Bundesliga. It may be that he he grows in that role. Endo is a is a bit of a stopgap, but was he fifteen million for an experienced Japan national? It's it's not the worst deal in the world. And I suppose it's okay to have a stopgap. Yeah, there's nothing wrong in itself with a stopgap. A stopgap is an acknowledgement of a problem, and you're finding a short term inexpensive solution. The problem is when your stopgaps are Casemiro and cost £60 million and you get a season out of them at most and they now look shot. Uh, and, and if you, he's one of, sort of half a dozen stopgaps in your team. Um, yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought of what the word stopgap means, but I guess... No, but I feel like no podcast in the history of time has said the word stopgap more <laughs> than this one. Yeah, perhaps. So, yeah, if, you, if you're... The presence of multiple stop gaps implies the presence of a lot of gaps that need stopping. And those gaps are themselves evidence of a failure of recruitment. If we're being very honest, I was a stop gap, really. You know, so So, so, so sometimes they can work. Well, yeah. Well sometimes people just forget that the stop gap <laughs> is there. Um uh, let's go to Villa Park. Villa three Luton one, twelve straight wins at home for Villa. Uh, absolutely flying, Baz. And and actually there's this there's this little gap now. Like they're four points off Tottenham, they're in fifth. There's five points between them and Newcastle. Um so no, I wouldn't mind if these five ran away with it, as long as they were all up there or thereabouts at the end of the season. Yeah, no, I'd have no problem with it at all. Villa fans must be delighted with the progress they're making under Unai Emery, he's improved so many players, uh, noticeably John McGean and Ollie Watkins, I think. But uh, Moussa Diaby, great signing as well. You have to, I suppose, add the, the caveat, it's only Luton, but they're scoring loads of goals. Watkins wasn't on the score sheet in this game, they still got three. Um, and will they be good enough to challenge for a Champions League place I could be top five right it could be top maybe. five given coefficients right yeah oh top five yeah 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 maybe maybe um, why not yeah Diaby's finish was great uh, McGinn's goal is so good because of that little flick over the defender when he realizes he can't take it first time and then two own goals of which will the Esri concert off the bar onto Martinez was a thing of beauty always good to see the goalkeeper have the, the unfortunate uh, moniker next to him the OG this is a nice bit of light-hearted comedy we could all laugh at because it meant nothing in the game yeah. it meant nothing even as we could kind of smile about it I wonder just how big Martinez's clean sheet bonus is because he didn't seem to find <laughs> no. it funny at all <laughs> <laughs> that is true um, Andros Townsend um, friend of the pod I mean I have no idea if he listens but you know he is linked to the pod um, has Townsend Senior on the back of his shirt this is because he has a four-year-old son also called Andros Andros Townsend Junior 
Um, and uh, he's sort of hoping that maybe he'll follow in his father's footsteps, have a career in it. Seems early. Well, I hope he does too, because I think Andros Jr.'s mother is Irish. So oh, wow. hopefully he'll play for the Republic of Ireland. Um, uh, finally, Brighton won Fulham one. Um, how is Jao Polina on the pitch to score that goal? Um, Baz. I mean, the great, great line from Marco Silva at the end saying, well, it was very wet. So <laughs> I suppose I suppose elbowing people in the head is a fair game. I found it very hard to focus on this game because of Brighton's, um, or no, the Fulham kit. It was just too pink and I, I couldn't, it was dazzling. Um, but yeah, Joe Polino was a very lucky boy to stay on the pitch after he elbowed Pascal Gross in the face and got away with it. I'm not sure how. And then he, he that enabled him to still be there to score that wonderful goal. Um, wasn't a brilliant game and Brighton should have won and could have if Anthony Robinson uh, wasn't on hand to, to head that Adam Webster header that was dropping over the line, off the line, just right at the end. But yeah, Fulham are hanging on at the end and good point for them. Europod tomorrow, so we'll talk in detail about uh, Jude Bellingham and uh, Harry Kane. Ian says, I know it'll be a busy show if you do have time at the end for a couple of minutes on the shit show that is QPR. Club very much run into the ground and League One beckoning unless Uncle Neil, as in Neil Warnock, can come out of retirement again and come back as manager. Seems he's the favourite. We'll cover that the next time we do the EFL. Hello to Ian Nick. Uh, who got in touch, and all our Canadian listeners. Uh, uh, it was the final of the Canadian Premier League, the, uh, uh, and Forge FC um, uh, won the game with a, a goal direct from a corner, also known as an Olympico. Why is that, Wilson? Do you know? So, Uruguay won the 24 Olympics. Argentina hadn't bothered to send a team to, to Paris, and Argentina were very annoyed by this. And so they said to Uruguay, right, we'll play you in two friendlies to, to prove like who the real Olympic champions are. Uruguay slightly stupidly said yes. And uh, it was 1 1 in Montevideo, the game back in Buenos Aires. There was all kinds of shenanigans with pitch invasions and people throwing stones between the, the pitch and the crowd. And it was, it was the first game had to be abandoned and, and restarted. And it was when it was replayed like a week later, it was the first time we put fences up in Buenos Aires. And the only goal of the game was scored direct from a, a corner. Uh, the rule had just been changed by FIFA. To, to allow you to score direct from a corner. There was some suggestion that the the uh, message hadn't had been given to the Uruguayans. They didn't even know that this was legitimate, but it was allowed. And so despite having nothing to do with the Olympics, other than Argentina really would have liked to have won it rather than Uruguay, that is now known as a goal Olympico. Uh, well, well done to Tristan Borges, who scored that goal for Forge FC Hamilton uh, as they beat Calvary 2-1. And if you want to know more about Argentinian football in the 1920s, uh, there'll be an update Avenge the Dirty Faces featuring last year's World Cup win coming out early in December. The perfect Christmas present. An email from James, Weekly at theguardian.com. says, hello, following a meal at a pretentious sushi restaurant in Brixton, some friends and I blundered around the area in search of a pub showing the Spurs match. Having eventually found one, we became increasingly distracted by a familiar voice holding court across the bar, only to realise we'd inadvertently stumbled into Barry's pub. To our amazement, not only was he not watching the Spurs Palace match, but he seemed to be completely engrossed in the meaningless third-place rugby playoff between England and Argentina. I can only assume that his intense desire to see England lose, whatever the sport, trumped any sense of professional duty to watch the most exciting team of the season cement their position at the top of the league and that he therefore regretted his viewing choice when after a tepid showing England nevertheless sealed third place and denied him his schadenfreude glee. All the best. Love the show, James. Well, James and his mates should have said hello and I actually wanted England to win because I had a £5 bet on them with Martin, the pub landlord. So I was very happy they won the third place playoff. When did you land from Thailand? Uh, late on Thursday night. Ah, okay. I thought you'd gone straight. I thought you hadn't dumped your suitcase. Gone straight in. Oh, no, I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> straight from Never change, airport, pub. Oh, look, Max, 12 and a half hours on a plane with a, a, a crying child. Well, you, you probably know all about this, but... yeah. A crying child in a nearby seat with the long lungs like Freddie Mercury. Um, I I needed a pint after I got off that. I I don't I don't really drink on planes, 
I don't want to be that guy, you know, who's got two police cars <laughs> waiting for him on the runway. Yeah, I really want you to be that guy, if I'm honest. Anyway, um, that'll do for today. Cheers, Will. Thank you very much. Cheers, Baz. Thank you. Good to be back. Cheers, Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 